Section nine of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume two by James Boswell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. He remained at Oxford a considerable time. Footnote. He thus wrote of himself from Oxford to Mrs. Thrale. This little dog does nothing, but I hope he will mend. He is now reading Jack the Giant Killer. Perhaps so noble a narrative may rouse in him the soul of enterprise. Piozzi letters in a footnote. I was obliged to go to London, where I received his letter which had been returned from Scotland. To James Boswell, Esquire. My dear Boswell, I have omitted a long time to write to you without knowing very well why. I could now tell why I should not write, for who would write to men who publish the letters of their friends without their leave? Yet I write to you in spite of my caution, to tell you that I shall be glad to see you, and that I wish you would empty your head of Corsica, which I think has filled it rather too long. But at all events I shall be glad, very glad, to see you. I am, so yours affectionately, Samuel Johnson. Oxford, March the 23rd, 1768. I answered thus to Mr. Samuel Johnson, London, 26th of April, 1768, footnote. Under the same date, Boswell thus begins a letter to Temple. Your moral lecture came to me yesterday in very good time, while I lay suffering severely for immorality. If there is any firmness at all in me, be assured that I shall never again behave in a manner so unworthy the friend of Paoli. My warm imagination looks forward with great complacency on the sobriety, the healthfulness, and the worth of my future life. Letters of Boswell, page 147. End of footnote. My dear sir, I have received your last letter, which though very short and by no means complimentary yet gave me real pleasure because it contains these words i should be glad very glad to see you surely you have no reason to complain of my publishing a single paragraph of one of your letters the temptation to it was so strong an irrevocable grant of your friendship and your dignifying my desire of visiting Corsica with the epithet of a wise and noble curiosity are to me more valuable than many of the grants of kings. But how can you bid me empty my head of Corsica? Footnote. Johnson, so early as August the 21st, 1766, had given him the same advice. How little Boswell followed it is shown by his letter to the Earl of Chatham on April the 8th, 1767, in which he informed him of his intention to publish his Corsica, and concluded, Could your lordship find time to honour me now and then with a letter? I have been told how favourably your lordship has spoken of me. To correspond with a Paoli and with a Chatham is enough to keep a young man ever ardent in the pursuit of virtuous fame. Chatham Correspondence On the same day on which he wrote to Johnson, he said in a letter to Temple, Old General Oglethorpe, who has come to see me, and is with me often, just on account of my book, bids me not to marry 
till I have first put the Corsicans in a proper situation. You may make a fortune in the doing of it, said he, or, if you do not, you will have acquired such a character as will entitle you to any fortune. Letters of Boswell, page 148. Four months later, Boswell wrote, By a private subscription in Scotland, I am sending this week £700 worth of ordnance, in square brackets, to Corsica. It is really a tolerable train of artillery. Ibid, page 156. In 1769, he brought out a small volume entitled British Essays in Favour of the Brave Corsicans by several hands, collected and published by James Boswell, Esquire. End of footnote. My noble-minded friend, do you not feel for an oppressed nation bravely struggling to be free? Consider fairly what is the case. The Corsicans never received any kindness from the Genoese. Footnote. From about the beginning of the 14th century, Corsica had belonged to the Republic of Genoa. In the great rising under Paoli, the Corsicans would have achieved their independence had not Genoa ceded the island to the crown of France. End of footnote. They never agreed to be subject to them. They owe them nothing and when reduced to an abject state of slavery by force, shall they not rise in the great cause of liberty and break the galling yoke? And shall not every liberal soul be warm for them? Empty my head of Corsica. Empty it of honour, empty it of humanity, empty it of friendship, empty it of piety. No, while I live, Corsica, and the cause of the brave islanders shall ever employ much of my attention, shall ever interest me in the sincerest manner. I am, etc., James Boswell. Upon his arrival in London in May, he surprised me one morning with a visit at my lodgings in Half Moon Street. Footnote. Boswell, writing to Temple on May the 14th of this year, says, I am really the great man now. I have had David Hume in the forenoon and Mr. Johnson in the afternoon of the same day visiting me. Sir J. Pringle and Dr. Franklin dined with me today. Mr. Johnson and General Oglethorpe one day, Mr. Garrick alone another, and David Hume and some more literati another dine with me next week. I give admirable dinners and good claret, and the moment I go abroad again, which will be in a day or two, I set up my chariot. This is enjoying the fruit of my labours and appearing like the friend of Paoli. Letters of Boswell, page 151. End of footnote. He surprised me one morning with a visit at my lodgings in Half Moon Street, was quite satisfied with my explanation and was in the kindest and most agreeable frame of mind. As he had objected to a part of one of his letters being published, I thought it right to take this opportunity of asking him explicitly whether it would be improper to publish his letters after his death. His answer was, Nay, sir, when I am dead, you may do as you will. He talked in his usual style with a rough contempt of popular liberty. Note. 
the talk arose no doubt from the general election that had just been held amid all the excitement about wilkes dr franklin memoirs in a letter dated april the sixteenth seventeen sixty eight describes the riots in london he had seen the mob requiring gentlemen and ladies of all ranks as they passed in their carriages to shout for wilkes and liberty marking the same words on all their coaches with chalk and number forty-five on every door i went last week to winchester and observed that for fifteen miles out of town there was scarce a door or window shutter next the road unmarked and this continued here and there quite to winchester End of footnote. they make a rout about universal liberty without considering that all that is to be valued or indeed can be enjoyed by individuals is private liberty political liberty is good only so far as it produces private liberty now sir there is the liberty of the press which you know is a constant topic footnote in his vindication of the licences of the stage he thus writes if i might presume to advise them in square brackets the ministers upon this great affair i should dissuade them from any direct attempt upon the liberty of the press which is the darling of the common people and therefore cannot be attacked without immediate danger works volume five page three four four on page one nine one of the same volume he shows some of the benefits that arise in england from the boundless liberty with which every man may write his own thoughts see also in his life of milton the passage about Erapagitica, ibid volume seven page eighty two the liberty of the press was likely to be a constant topic horace walpole memoirs of the reign of george the third writing of the summer of seventeen sixty four says two hundred informations were filed against printers a larger number than had been prosecuted in the whole thirty-three years of the last reign End of footnote. suppose you and i and two hundred more were restrained from printing our thoughts what then what proportion would that restraint upon us bear to the private happiness of the nation Footnote. the sun has risen and the corn has grown and whatever talk has been of danger of property yet he that ploughed the field commonly reaped it and he that built a house was master of the door the vexation excited by injustice suffered or supposed to be suffered by any private man or single community was local and temporary it neither spread far nor lasted long johnson's works volume six page one seventy see also post marked thirty first seventeen seventy two dr franklin memoirs wrote to the abbe morellet on april the twenty second seventeen eighty seven nothing can be better expressed than your sentiments are on this point where you prefer liberty of trading cultivating manufacturing etc even to civil liberty this being affected but rarely the other every hour End footnote. this mode of representing the inconveniences of restraint as light and insignificant 
was a kind of sophistry in which he delighted to indulge himself in opposition to the extreme laxity for which it has been fashionable for too many to argue when it is evident upon reflection that the very essence of government is restraint and certain it is that as government produces rational happiness too much restraint is better than too little but when restraint is unnecessary and so close as to gall those who are subject to it the people may and ought to remonstrate and if relief is not granted to resist of this manly and spirited principle no man was more convinced than johnson himself about this time dr kenrick attacked him through my sides in a pamphlet entitled an epistle to james boswell esq occasioned by his having transmitted the moral writings of dr samuel johnson to pascal paoli general of the corsicans Footnote. i was diverted with paoli's english library it consisted of some broken volumes of the spectator and tatler pope's essay on man gulliver's travels a history of france in old english and Barclay's apology for the Quakers. I promised to send him some English books. I have sent him some of our best books of morality and entertainment, in particular the works of Mr. Samuel Johnson. Boswell's Corsica, end of footnote. I was at first inclined to answer this pamphlet, but Johnson who knew that my doing so would only gratify kenrick by keeping alive what would soon die away of itself would not suffer me to take any notice of it Footnote. johnson as boswell believed only once in the whole course of his life condescended to oppose anything that was written against him in this he followed the rule of bentley and of boerhaave it was said to old bentley upon the attacks against him why they'll write you down no sir he replied depend upon it no man was ever written down but by himself boswell's hebrides october the first seventeen seventy three bentley showed prudence in his silence he was right johnson said not to answer for in his hazardous method of writing he could not for be often enough wrong boswell's hebrides september the tenth seventeen seventy three poor harvard was never soured by calumny and detraction nor ever thought it necessary to confute them for they are sparks said he which if you do not blow them will go out of themselves johnson's works volume six page two eight eight swift in his lines on censure which begin ye wise instruct me to endure an evil which admits no cure ends by saying the most effectual way to balk their malice is to let them talk swift's works young in his second epistle to pope had written armed with this truth all critics i defy for if i fall by my own pen i die hume in his autobiography says i had a fixed resolution which i inflexibly maintained never to reply to anybody 
This is not quite true. See J. H. Burden's Life of Hume for an instance of a violent reply. The following passages in Johnson's writings are to the same effect. I am inclined to believe that few attacks, either of ridicule or invective, make much noise but by the help of those that they provoke. Piazzi Letters It is very rarely that an author is hurt by his critics. The blaze of reputation cannot be blown out, but it often dies in the socket. Ibid. The writer who thinks his works formed for duration mistakes his interest when he mentions his enemies. He degrades his own dignity by showing that he was affected by the censures and gives lasting importance to names which, left to themselves, would vanish from remembrance. Johnson's Works, Volume 7, page 294. If it had been possible for those who were attacked to conceal their pain and their resentment, the Dunciad might have made its way very slowly in the world. Ibid, volume 8, page 276. Hawkins, Life of Johnson, page 348, says that against personal abuse Johnson was ever armed by a reflection that I have heard him utter. Alas, reputation would be of little worth were it in the power of every concealed enemy to deprive us of it. In his Parliamentary Debates, Works, Volume 10, page 359, Johnson makes Mr. Littleton say, No man can fall into contempt but those who deserve it. Addison, in The Freeholder, number 40, says, There is not a more melancholy object in the learned world than a man who has written himself down. See also Boswell's Hebrides near the end. End of footnote. His sincere regard for Francis Barber, his faithful negro servant, made him so desirous of his further improvement that he now placed him at a school at Bishop Stortford in Hertfordshire. This humane attention does Johnson's heart much honour. Out of many letters which Mr. Barber received from his master, he has preserved three, which he kindly gave me, and which I shall insert according to their dates. To Mr. Francis Barber, dear Francis, I have been very much out of order. I am glad to hear that you are well, and design to come soon to see you. I would have you stay at Mrs. Clapp's for the present, till I can determine what we shall do. Be a good boy. Footnote. Barber had entered Johnson's service in 1752. Nine years before this letter was written, he had been a sailor on board a frigate, so that he was somewhat old for a boy. End of footnote. My compliments to Mrs. Clapp and to Mr. Fowler. I am yours affectionately, Samuel Johnson, May the 28th, 1768. Soon afterwards he supped at the Crown and Anchor Tavern in the Strand with a company whom I collected to meet him. They were Dr. Percy, now Bishop of Dromore, Dr. Douglas, now Bishop of Salisbury, Mr. Langton, Dr. Robertson the Historian, footnote. Boswell writing to Temple on May the 14th of this year says, 
Dr. Robertson is come up laden with his Charles V, three large quartos. He has been offered three thousand guineas for it. Letters of Boswell, page 152, end of footnote. Dr. Hugh Blair and Mr. Thomas Davies, who wished much to be introduced to these eminent Scotch literati, but on the present occasion he had very little opportunity of hearing them talk for with an excess of prudence for which johnson afterwards found fault with them they hardly opened their lips and that only to say something which they were certain would not expose them to the sword of goliath such was their anxiety for their fame when in the presence of johnson footnote in like manner the professors at aberdeen and glasgow seemed afraid to speak in his presence See Boswell's Hebrides, August the twenty-third and October the twenty-ninth, seventeen seventy-three. See also Post, April the twentieth, seventeen seventy-eight. And a footnote. He was this evening in remarkable vigour of mind and eager to exert himself in conversation, which he did with great readiness and fluency. But I am sorry to find that I have preserved but a small part of what passed. He allowed high praise to Thompson as a poet, but when one of the company said he was also a very good man, our moralist contested this with great warmth, accusing him of gross sensuality and licentiousness of manners. I was very much afraid that in writing Thompson's life Dr. Johnson would have treated his private character with a stern severity, but I was agreeably disappointed and I may claim a little merit in it, from my having been at pains to send him authentic accounts of the affectionate and generous conduct of that poet to his sisters, one of whom, the wife of Mr. Thompson's schoolmaster at Lanark, I knew, and was presented by her with three of his letters, one of which Dr. Johnson has inserted in his life. Footnote. Johnson, in inserting this letter, says, Works, Volume 8, page 374, I communicate it with much pleasure, as it gives me at once an opportunity of recording the fraternal kindness of Thompson, and reflecting on the friendly assistance of Mr. Boswell, from whom I received it. See Post, July ninth, 1777, and June the 18th, 1778. End of footnote. He was vehement against old Dr. Mounsey of Chelsea College as a fellow who swore and talked bawdy. Footnote. Murphy, in his Life of Garrick, says that Garrick once brought Dr. Mounsey, so he writes the name, to call on him. Garrick entered the dining room and, turning suddenly round, ran to the door and called out, Dr. Munsey, where are you going? Upstairs, to see the author, said Munsey. Come down, the author is here. Dr. Munsey came, and as he entered the room, said in his free way, You scoundrel, I was going up to the garret. Who could think of finding an author on the first floor? Mrs. Montague wrote to Lord Littleton from Tunbridge in 1760, the great Monsey, sick, came hither on Friday. He is great in the coffee-house, great in the rooms, and great on the pantiles. Montague letters. 
In Roger's table talk there is a curious account of him. End of footnote. I have been often in his company, said Dr. Percy, and never heard him swear or talk bawdy. Mr. Davies, who sat next to Dr. Percy, having after this had some conversation aside with him, made a discovery in which, in his zeal to pay court to Dr. Johnson, he eagerly proclaimed aloud from the foot of the table, Oh, sir, I have found out a very good reason why Dr. Percy never heard Mouncey swear or talk bawdy, for he tells me he never saw him but at the Duke of Northumberland's table. And so, sir, said Johnson loudly to Dr. Percy, you would shield this man from the charge of swearing and talking bawdy, because he did not do so at the Duke of Northumberland's table. Sir, you might as well tell us you had seen him hold up his hand at the old bailey, and he neither swore nor talked bawdy, or that you had seen him in the cart at Tyburn, and he neither swore nor talked bawdy. And is it thus, sir, that you presume to controvert what I have related? Dr. Johnson's animadversion was uttered in such a manner that Dr. Percy seemed to be displeased, and soon afterwards left the company, of which Johnson did not at that time take any notice. Swift having been mentioned, Johnson, as usual, treated him with little respect as an author. Some of us endeavoured to support the Dean of St. Patrick's by various arguments, one in particular praised his conduct of the Allies. Johnson. Sir, his conduct of the Allies is a performance of very little ability. Surely, sir, said Dr. Douglas, you must allow it has strong facts. Footnote. My respectable friend, upon reading this passage, observed that he probably must have said not simply strong facts, but strong facts well arranged. His lordship, however, knows too well the value of written documents to insist on setting his recollection against my notes taken at the time. He does not attempt to traverse the record. The fact, perhaps, may have been either that the additional words escaped me in the noise of a numerous company, or that Dr. Johnson from his impetuosity and eagerness to seize an opportunity to make a lively retort, did not allow Dr. Douglas to finish his sentence. Boswell. End of footnote. Johnson. Why, yes, sir. But what is that to the merit of the composition? In the Sessions paper of the Old Bailey there are strong facts. Housebreaking is a strong fact, robbery is a strong fact, and murder is a mighty strong fact. But is great praise due to the historian of those strong facts? No, sir. Swift has told what he had to tell distinctly enough, but that is all. He had to count ten, and he has counted it right. Footnote. It is boasted that between November, in square bracket 1712, and January, 11,000, in square brackets of the conduct of the Allies, was sold. Yet surely whoever surveys this wonder-working pamphlet with cool perusal 
who confessed that its efficacy was supplied by the passions of its readers that it operates by the mere weight of facts with very little assistance from the hand that produced them johnson's works volume eight page two hundred three and a footnote then recollecting that mr davies by acting as an informer had been the occasion of his talking somewhat too harshly to his friend dr percy for which probably when the first ebullition was over he felt some compunction footnote every great man of whatever kind be his greatness has among his friends those who officiously or insidiously quicken his attention to offences heighten his disgust and stimulate his resentment ibid volume eight page two six six end of footnote he took an opportunity to give him a hit so added with a preparatory laugh <laughs> why sir tom davies might have written the conduct of the allies poor tom being thus suddenly dragged into ludicrous notice in the presence of the scottish doctors to whom he was ambitious of appearing to advantage was grievously mortified nor did his punishment rest here for upon subsequent occasions whenever he statesman all over footnote, see the hard drawing of him in churchill's roskia boswell end of footnote, assumed a strutting importance i used to hail him the author of the conduct of the allies when i called upon dr johnson next morning i found him highly satisfied with his colloquial prowess the preceding evening well said he we had a good talk boswell yes sir you tossed and gored several persons the late alexander earl of eglantoon who loved wit more than wine and men of genius more than sycophants had a great admiration of johnson but from the remarkable elegance of his own manners was perhaps too delicately sensible of the roughness which sometimes appeared in johnson's behaviour one evening about this time when his lordship did me the honour to sup at my lodgings with dr robertson and several other men of literary distinction he regretted that johnson had not been educated with more refinement and lived more in polished society no no my lord said signor baretti do with him what you would he would always have been a bear true answered the earl with a smile but he would have been a dancing bear to obviate all the reflections which have gone round the world to johnson's prejudice by applying to him the epithet of a bear let me impress upon my readers a just and happy saying of my friend goldsmith who knew him well johnson to be sure has a roughness in his manner but no man alive has a more tender heart he has nothing of the bear but his skin End of section nine.